0: Well, good, morning. good morning. All right, you got to do better than that this morning. Good, morning. good morning. It's like seventy degrees today. It's like you thought last week was going to be like the beginning of last week it was going to be winter, right? All of a sudden, and now, oh, summer's coming back. So, um, my name is Michael. One of the one of the pastors at Veritas. Great to be with you guys. Uh, super thankful to be here. Really encouraged by what God's doing here. Um, great to see so many different faces. Um, So many faces I've known for a few years, but then lots of new faces as well. So um, when I was thinking about winter that I thought was coming this past week, um, I was thinking about some of those videos, maybe you've been on these videos before, where there's like a little incline on somebody's driveway and it's a complete sheet of ice, right? And you're like, you like, now some of you are like, oh yeah, I've been in one of those videos, right? So you step onto the onto the driveway, and all of a sudden you start sliding, and you're trying to grasp for anything, right? Like whatever you can find to hold on to, but you can't seem to hold on to anything, and you just keep sliding and sliding and sliding, and then end up, you know not standing upright at the end of it. And then some, hoping, you know, somebody else is going to come out of the house at some point and see you down there. So you're like, hey, come come help me. So they start sliding and sliding and sliding and you grab onto them. You're like, okay, both of us can get back up the driveway, but you know how that goes, right? You start to go and nobody has anything really good to hold on to. And that the person that you thought, okay, this person's going to be the one to like help me up the driveway can't get you there either. And I think a lot of times when I think of that story, it reminds me of like, oh, I want to be a part of God's plan. But for some reason, it just feels like it's slipping away. And you're going to grab onto whatever you can to just hold on. Oh, yeah, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep doing this whole God thing. I'm going to follow Jesus. But you're just grasping. And it just feels like it's slipping away. And you even grab a hold of somebody that's really mature. Like a spiritual hero of yours. Like, oh, if I can just be like my grandpa, if I can just be like grandma, or if I can just be like my dad who loves Jesus, or my mom that loves Jesus, and you start grasping, and then all of a sudden, like, some of those stories come out. Like, pastor gets arrested. Wait, that's the one I'm like, that's the one I was following. Like, evangelist steals money from the church. Like, spiritual hero has moral failure and you what you thought was like this is the person that's going to help lead me to follow Jesus more now now they're falling like what do you do when a spiritual hero of yours falls what do you do when somebody you've looked up to for a long time just falls now some of you are like, wait, what are you going to tell us? Like, I'm not going to tell you anything. It's just tell you about a, a man in the scripture this morning that we all upheld. It's like, oh, this is an incredible man of God. And then he falls. What, is, what are you supposed to do with that, right? So how do we respond when a, a spiritual hero falls? More importantly, what do we hold on to when evil and maybe even people seem to be derailing God's plan? Like, Oh, no, I thought God was doing this, and he's not doing this. Like, what do you hold on to? Because you can grasp for a lot of things, but what are you going to hold on to when it feels like wickedness and and people are are taking out God's plan? So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 8 and 9. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. We're going to be at the end of chapter 8 and going through chapter 9. Um, There's a lot of rabbit trails in this chapter that we can chase, all right? We can talk about eating meat and the death penalty and rainbows and drunkenness and sexual perversion, all right? We're going to hit on a lot of those. Some of you are like, oh my goodness, where are we going today, all right? So uh, we're going to hit on those things, but I want you to see the bigger picture of what's being communicated. Now, remember the context that Genesis is written in. This is really important, especially today, all right? So the context this is written in is the Israelites have come out of slavery in Egypt, and they're wandering around in the wilderness, but they're about to take the promised land. And in the promised land, they're about to take the land of Canaan. This is going to be really important for us later, but this is all occurring after creation has happened. Creation is been this beautiful thing where God has worked and as creation has God has worked in mighty mighty ways this beautiful creation happens and then mankind sins right and then sin begins to spread through that first family and then it spreads through society and we get to where we were last week when Matthew preached and it spreads so much that the world becomes so wicked that God says no we're gonna we're gonna restart this thing because this is out of control. This is a, not out of God's control. But this, is, this evil and wickedness has spread so much. What are we going to do with this? And so God says, I'm going to send a flood. And I'm going to destroy the whole entire earth. I'm going to destroy everything. Except for who? Who is the person we're going to save? Noah. Noah. All right. So we're going to save Noah. We're going to save his wife. We're going to save his three kids, Shem Shem. Ham and Japheth, we're going to come back to those three because you're like, I don't know anything about them. You're about to learn more today, all right? So Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and they're all going, they've gone through this flood, and they've kind of, Noah spent about 100 years building this ark. He spends about a year actually on the ark. And now today he's stepping off the ark. Kind of new creation happening here a little bit, all right? So Genesis Genesis chapter 8, verse 20 says, So this is right when Noah steps off the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So what is the first thing that Moses does when he steps off the altar? I mean, when he steps off the ark, he offers worship, right? He worships. Why? Because he's just been reminded for the last year when this flood took place for 40 days and 40 nights that there's a curse upon the land now because of sin and God had to destroy it. And so the fact that God would spare Noah and his family is just an act of God's grace and mercy, right? God has been so gracious, so merciful to Noah and his family. Noah recognizes that. And he goes, Oh yes, I'm going to praise you, God. You've been gracious and merciful. Now, Noah didn't take every animal onto the ark, right? He only took a handful of every animal. So When you step off the ark and you start offering animal sacrifices, that's kind of a big deal. Like, they're already endangered, nearly extinct, right? And then Moses is giving up something pretty costly. Now, if you think back to Cain and Abel, remember that whole story where Cain murders his brother Abel? But why was Cain jealous? Because Abel offered a sacrifice that was more acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. And so here you've got Abel offering the first fruits and the fat portions. And God's going, yeah, I'm, I'm going to honor that. And Noah's doing the same thing. He's giving a costly offering. Worship that costs you something. What are you going to offer your life? How are you going to offer your lives to the Lord? So here you've got Noah, this righteous, blameless guy that walked with God, that is giving his best to God. The God that's going to kind of lead this whole recreation thing. And if I would encourage you, look through kind of Genesis 8 and 9 and compare that to Genesis 1 through 4. We don't have time to do that today. But there's so many parallels of when creation started and then this kind of new creation after the flood. It's amazing to look at. But So you've got Noah, this great blameless guy walking with God, offering this great worship to God. Now, we're going to fast forward to chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. We're going to come back to that middle part. So, wonderful, great guy. Chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. This is where it gets weird, all right? Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Wait a second. Like, is it, Wait, is this, this the blameless guy walking with God? This is Noah. Noah's the one that just got saved on this ark. Like, God provided salvation. Wait, Noah's the one, like, wait a second. He's he's the one getting, like, drunk and laying naked in the tent? Like, who is this? Like, that's one of those deleted scenes out of your kid's Bible stories, right? Like, that one doesn't, that one, hey, Dad, Dad, um, like, why is Noah asleep and blurred out in this picture? Like that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Like, why? What has happened? Here's Noah. The great, blameless, righteous one that walked with God and now passed out in his tent drunk. What happened? What where does this go? Like now, some of you are like, whoa, that was a quick change, all right? Now, it wasn't that it was quick in our Bible to go from one story to the next, but it, he had enough time to get off the ark, plant a vineyard, make wine. Like, there's a, whole, there's a lot of time that occurred in this process. We go from one chapter to the next and think it was just immediate. But this is a, a, a good bit of time that occurred here, all right? So it says he was a man of the soil. If you remember Cain, he was a worker of the ground. Very similar thing. That's one of those parallels, so, Noah sins. There's drunkenness. There's some kind of, some kind of indecency. And all throughout Scripture, there's, there's no prohibition for a use of alcohol, but there's absolute warning after warning after warning do not misuse it. Do not misuse it. Do not misuse it. Do not misuse it. Because the use of alcohol, the abuse of alcohol, leads to more sin in your own life, and it puts, creates opportunities for others to sin as well. So it says he was drunk and he lay uncovered in his tent. Now, if you looked at Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 20, those are the ones you skip in your Bible reading plan most of the time because you get law after law after law. But this whole law in Leviticus 18 and 20 talks about uncovering nakedness, uncovering nakedness. And there's this, like, there's this picture there of, that it's just an abomination and depravity associated with this, all right? There's some kind of indecency happening here. Here's the hero with a chance to restart creation. Drunk and naked in a tent. What do we do with that? Like this is our hero. This is the one that God saved. One thing it says that old age isn't a guarantee that you're going to avoid sin. Like I mean Moses is like 600 years old right now and he's still making dumb decisions, right? Like, just because you get older, I hope you get wiser. But that doesn't mean that you're going to just avoid sin because you're older in age. Any older people want to say amen right there? Don't do it. Like, don't, don't go there, right? Now. No, no, don't say it. But we can all be there, right? Like, oh, once I get older, I'm going to avoid sin. Here's Noah. He's literally 600 years old, not avoiding sin. Guys, the problem of sin wasn't just avoided in the flood problem of sin wasn't avoided the ark provided temporary salvation a temporary rest from striving but a permanent salvation was needed and what you need to know was noah wasn't the savior and for moses writing to the israelites they need to know hey moses isn't your savior just like noah wasn't the savior moses isn't going to be the savior e- either Because a hero, a spiritual hero, doesn't solve your problem. Salvation is not found in a person created by God that's not God. Jesus, obviously, is the one. But if we anchor our lives and anchor our hope and put our trust in just a spiritual leader, they're going to let you down. I'm going to let you down. Richard's going to let you down at some point. Jeth's going to let you down. Jason's going to let you down. Your pastor, your teacher, your parent, your grandparent will let you down at some point. But in this story, it actually gets worse. So, verses 22 and 23 of chapter 9. It says, And Ham, all right, here's the son, and Ham, the father of Canaan. So, um, Moses is pointing out really specifically here this is Canaan's father. Said he saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. They're like, what is going on here? So Ham steps into this scene and he finds his dad in a mess. Noah's in a mess. Now, there's a lot of different interpretations of what happens with Ham here. That at minimum, there's a guy that's shameful, defenseless, and he exposes his dad's sin. All right? At worst, you go back to that Leviticus 18 and verse 20. It's like, did something lustful and sexual happen here? We're not sure. It, the most basic form, there was a lack of honor for somebody that was in their sin. There was, there was a lack of respect for an authority figure. And so he kind of abandons all his morals at this point. And he mocks his dad. And he goes out and says, hey, look. Brother's like, hey, look, what, look at dad in here. Look at him. You're like, What's gross? Why are we doing this? But here's a guy like not honoring his father. Even in the midst of his sin. He's not honoring him. He's not respecting him. But on the contrast, Shem and Japheth go, man, we're not going to be a part of that. They won't even look at their father. They walk in backwards with a blanket, not even looking, and then they put the blanket on their father just to have some honor and respect and some decency for this man who's just in his sin. And when that happens, like it's just a good reminder like, how do you respond when other people fall in their sin? Are you the one going, Oh, did you hear about them? Are you did you see what they did? Did you hear what they did yesterday? And that's not the kind of honor that we want to give as followers of Jesus. Now, nowhere does it say that Shem and Japheth condone the sin of their father. I'm not saying condone other people's sin and say, oh, it's okay. Like sometimes you're in a connection group and somebody confesses their sin. If you're in that group, you like, it's okay. No, it's not okay. They sinned. It's wrong. Say, man, let's talk about the gospel. Let's talk about forgiveness. You don't look at somebody when they're confessing sin and say, it's okay. It's not okay. You've offended God, however, you respond with grace because you man, I've been there too and God's been so forgiving. God's so gracious. But for Ham, he goes in and he just lacks all honor, just abandons his morals. But the other brothers don't. So then what happens next? Verses 24 through 27. When Noah awoke from his wine, and knew that his, what his youngest son had done to him, he said, "Cursed be Canaan, Not cursed Ham. Ham's the one that did this. Curse my grandson." Oh, that's weird. We'll talk about that in a second. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, "Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of them of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant." Alright, so Noah awakes and he starts firing off a curse to not Ham but to Shem, but blessings to Shem and Japheth for the way that they responded. So why in the world is Noah going to curse Canaan, the grandson? Was that because Canaan, um, Canaan's alive at this point? He knows Canaan. This is not like Canaan's not there yet. So he knows who he is. Does he know something more about Canaan that we, Canaan that we don't know? I don't know. Right? Was, was Canaan there with his dad when he, they walked in on grandpa? I don't know. No idea. Was Ham the righteous one? Ham was righteous even though he, he sinned. Was he righteous and his other sons that we know that he had, were they righteous? But Canaan wasn't righteous and so a curse is put out on him. Again, we don't know what exactly happens there. But we know that family sin affects family. Affects future family. That your sin isn't just going to affect you. It's going to affect your kids, your grandkids, and maybe generations to come. And so he says, I'm going to, I curse you, Canaan. I curse you, Canaan. You're going to be a servant of servants to your brothers. You're going to be this unfree slave to your brothers. But he, then he says, I want to bless not just Shem, I want to bless the God of Shem. Because there was something special that Shem recognized that his God was great. And there's this direct blessing upon Shem. Now the people of Shem, next week we'll find out, but the people of Shem, Israel comes out of that line. It's an amazing thing when you realize, like, oh, God's preserving the line of Israel, which preserves this seed back in Genesis 3, remember? God said, hey, like, yes, you've sinned, but I'm gonna, there's going to be a, a snake crusher to come that's going to crush the head of the serpent, a seed of offspring of Eve Like that's going to crush the serpent. He's going to preserve this line over and over and over and over, and he's going to do it through this group of people in Israel. And Jesus is going to come out of this line. So he puts this blessing on the God of Shem. And there's this kind of indirect blessing to Japheth. Like, hey, yeah, you're going to grow too. And you're going to live in these tents as well. Not as good as this blessing upon Shem, no. But the point of this, like, why does does Moses, as he's writing Genesis, why does he include this this story about Noah? I think he's going to demonstrate that salvation isn't in an individual. We talked about that a second ago. You can't put your hope in an individual. I also think he's going to demonstrate that Canaan's cursed. Remember, if you're the wandering Israelites and you know you're going to take the promised land, and who is there in the promised land? The Canaanites. If you are going, how are we going to do this? Like, how are we going to take over this land? I don't know how we're going to do this. But you, oh, wait. Throughout history, now I know that the Canaanites are cursed. Like, they've been cursed. Like, okay. Like, if we have to go in and destroy them, that's okay because this is part of God's plan. It's such an encouragement To the wandering Israelites to go, oh, I know the nature and the origin and all this of the Canaanites. It gives them confidence when they go take the land. And it warns them against the consequences of their sin, though. So if you can't put your hope in a spiritual leader, if you can't just put your all your trust and this great faith hero in your life, whoever that may be, what in the world are you going to cling to? That's where we're going to go back. What happens in between these two stories? Genesis 8, 20, Noah's getting off the ark, worshiping God with his best, righteous and blameless. 9:20, 20 he's laying a mess in this tent. What happens in between and what is God going to say to these Israelites wandering around? What do you cling to when a spiritual hero falls? All right. So we're going to kind of move quickly through this, but go back through verse 21 and 22 of chapter 8. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So here's, remember Noah's offered this pleasing worship to God. There's this like meat being on this altar and God smells this pleasing aroma. We've all stood next to a grill and like, yeah, that's a pleasing aroma, right? But like God goes, this is a pleasing aroma. You're offering your best to me. This is pleasing to me. You know what? I'm not going to curse the ground anymore. I'm not going to destroy the whole earth by a flood anymore. I'm not going to do that. But then he makes that statement in there where he says, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. I'm not going to curse the ground, but hey, don't let don't you let you think that your like heart's been changed here. Like, from youth, from the time that you're a baby, your heart is and your intentions are evil. That hasn't changed. This whole flood didn't change somebody's heart, right? When I was growing up, me and my brother would play like a football video game or something. And we playing video games. He's older, three and a half years older. He would often beat me at video games, and we'd be playing football, and he'd go up by like twenty eight nothing at halftime. All right, and at that point, I just um, I was ready to be done. I didn't want to play anymore. So you know what I would do? I'd just run up and hit the reset button. He hated it, right? Like it, why, what? No, I want to beat you fifty six to nothing or a hundred to nothing. But I'm like, I don't want to deal with this. But Just because I hit the reset button didn't mean that I was going to be a good video game player the next time I played, right? I was still going to get destroyed the next time I played, right? Same thing's happening here. Hey, just because we restarted this whole world with a flood, that doesn't change your heart. Like, I destroyed the wickedness, but your heart is still evil and wicked. Guys, we don't just need a fresh start often in our lives. We need a new heart. Some of you are just looking for like, I just need a new start in my life. And God's going, no, no, no. You need something far deeper than a new start. You need a completely new heart. Because from youth, the intention of man's heart is evil. But God goes, I'm not going to curse the ground. So he's not going to curse the ground, but we're still evil. You know what that's a picture of? Grace. God's grace and mercy. I know how evil you are. And I'm still not going to curse the ground you walk on. I'm still going to spare the whole world. I'm going to show you great grace and mercy. So when somebody falls and it feels like wickedness is prevailing in the world, you hold on to God's grace. You don't let it go because it is good and we don't deserve it. That's why it's grace, right? Unmerited favor. So number one, you hold on to God's grace. Now, chapter 9, verse 1 says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You ever heard that before? Genesis chapter 1, right? Here, I created Adam and Eve. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. The same thing. This that parallel again to the creation. Hey, we're starting over. We're starting over. Your heart's still wicked, but I'm still going to pour out my blessing on you. Another sign of God's grace. Hold on to God's grace there. His blessing. The mission hasn't changed, right? If you're going to spread his blessing and spread his image in the world, like that's the mission. It's not about you, Noah. It's not about your family, Adam and Eve. It wasn't about you. It was about God's image and God's blessing being spread to the ends of the earth. And that mission hasn't changed here. It still continues I want you, Noah, you and your family, I want you to show the whole earth who I am, God's saying. When they look at your life, I want them to see a picture of who I am. Like, you can confidently hold to that. You can't confidently hold on to a person. You confidently hold on to the grace and the blessing of God. Verses 2 and 3 says this. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I've given you the green plants, I give you everything. So what you see is not just God's grace and not just God's blessing to hold on to, but here you have God's provision to hold on to. He said, I'm gonna provide you animals and the animals they're actually going to fear you and dread you aren't we grateful for that right <laughs> like but you see like even in a sinful world when somebody feels fearful and scared they often react crazy some of you had a pet that gets scared right by a little kid or something and like you're like oh this pet's supposed to fear and dread my little kid and now it just bit them in the face right um so sorry that's probably not a good a good picture there but like you get this like defensive act right Because there's fear. Because God's put that in animals. Like, this is how the creation order works. God working all this out. He goes, I'm going to give animals this fear of people. And said, I'm going to give those animals to you for food. Like, up until this point, they're just eating vegetables. They're just eating greens. But now they get to eat meat. It's a good day. Amen? Right? So there's, like, God's providing this food for them. Just great provision. Now, if you're the wandering Israelites again, you're struggling in the wilderness, what are you getting every day? Manna. Wait, you told, you told Noah and his family he gets meat, but we're stuck out here with manna, right? But you just know like God's going to be a provider over and over and over. And when somebody that you had latched onto and hoped in, they fall, you go, man, they couldn't provide for me. But my God does provide and God's gracious and God pours out his blessing and God pours out his provision and then in verses four through seven it says but you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood so hey you can eat everything just don't eat it while it's living all right and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast I will require it and from man From his fellow man, and I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Sorry. And you be fruitful and multiply, says that again, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So you've seen God's grace to hold on to, and God's blessing to hold on to, and his provision to hold on to. And now you see his protection. He says, you can eat it all, just don't eat the things that are living, right? And then he's going to talk about protecting his image bearers. And here he says over and over, God will require a reckoning. God will require it. God will require it. There's some authority that God has here that he's trying to lay out. And what he says is that if somebody takes a life, if somebody murders someone's life, their life can be taken. Because, again, it's not just about a life. It's about an image bearer being taken. And God's protecting his image in this world. And he goes... I'm going to give society the responsibility by man, the responsibility to carry this out. So in this like, post-flood world, God said, hey, I gotta, I'm going to restrain the violence in some way. And I'm going to let you guys take it into your own hands in some regard. Because life is precious. And life is valuable. And image bearers are valuable. And you're not just going to take the life of an image bearer. There's going to be some significant consequences if you're going to take the life of an image bearer. He goes, I'm going to protect life. I'm going to protect my image in this world. And guys, when you don't know what to hold on to, you cling to the fact that God deeply values you. And not just you, but because you carry his image into this world. So then verses 8 through 17. 17. There be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and and the earth. you cling to the promise of God and his covenant. Like we think like, okay, this is, this is part of the story that we all know, right? Noah steps off the ark, like offers this worship. God starts saying like, I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna pour grace out upon you. I'm gonna protect you. I'm gonna provide for you. And I'm gonna give you a sign of a covenant that I'm gonna make. Now what's a covenant? It's this special like relationship between two parties that they enter into. And there's some binding promises that are part of that. Now, this is one of the unique covenants in the Bible because this is not just a covenant to God and his people. This is God and all creation. And what's the promise that he's making in this covenant? Hey, I'm never, ever going to flood the whole earth again and destroy it. Isn't that a wonderful covenant? God's never going to flood the entire earth and destroy it that way. Now, there might be fire coming down the road, but for a flood, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to make a covenant. And this is like an unconditional covenant. However you act, a gracious covenant that God makes with them. However you act, I'm not going to flood the earth this way again. You're going to live your life the way you want to live it, but I'm not going to do it this way anymore. What a picture of grace again. And he establishes this incredible covenant where what happens he is preserving his plan this covenant is saying i'm going to preserve my plan because this line is going to continue i'm going to bring this seed and offspring from eve and he's going to save everything the ark couldn't be your salvation now the israelites are looking at this story and going noah couldn't be the salvation either so moses can't be our salvation the promised land isn't salvation god is our salvation and I'm going to put this sign in the sky, this rainbow in the sky, to say, like, I'm going to take this bow that I have and I'm going to hang it up in the sky. This bow that I could, you know, use for my wickedness, but I'm going to hang it up in the sky as a promise. That every time you see a rainbow, you go, man, God's patient. Wow, God provides. Wow, God's gracious. Wow, God's just pours out his blessings on us and we don't deserve it like that's the the sign that he's given to noah and his family hey i'm patient i'm gonna provide i'm gonna protect you the flood is part of god's judgment but his covenant is part of his peace so what do we hold on to again what do we hold on to when it seems like God's plan is getting sabotaged by evil or by people, even spiritual heroes? What do we hold on to? Now for us, it, again, it seems like this crazy jump to go like, "Oh yeah, covenant, rainbow in the sky." No, is a mess in the tent, right? But what this whole passage is saying is, God is trustworthy. God's man isn't always trustworthy. God is always trustworthy. Israelites, you want to take the promised land. You want a restful end. Don't forget Canaan's curse. Don't put your hope in a leader, but you hope in the faithfulness of God. And this is what I want you to remember, guys. Cling to God's faithfulness to continue in God's plan. Cling to God's faithfulness. His faithful grace, his faithful blessing, his faithful provision, his faithful protection, his faithful covenant. Guys, God hasn't surrendered his plan when wickedness starts to reign in the world. God has not surrendered his plan when one of your spiritual heroes falls. God is still gracious and good and faithful. So what do we do with a sermon like this? What do we do with a passage of scripture like this? One, you cling to God's faithfulness. You don't forget God's faithfulness. When a hero falls, when a leader lets you down, now, don't mock them. Don't dishonor them. You extend grace. You don't condone their sin by any stretch of the imagination. But then you don't just cling to that leader. You cling to the promises of God. When evil steps in and something goes down, you go, Jesus is going to build his church. Urbana is not built on any individual. This this is Jesus' church. This is God's church that he's building. I'm standing in the back watching you guys worship a second ago. I'm like, this is amazing. This is like a miraculous thing that God would allow us, wicked people, to like start His church here. That's amazing. And that's not based on any person in this room. Myself absolutely included in that. God starts a church by his grace. And how's he going to continue it? By his faithfulness. Not by any of us. So we just keep clinging to the faithfulness of God. Now you know if you're going to cling to the faithfulness of God. Some of you can't cling to the faithfulness of God. Because you're holding on to something else. And some of you need to let go of some sinfulness in your own life. You need to let go of the idolatry of individuals in your life. Some of you need to let go of pride in your life. Thinks that you can be faithful and continue in God's plan. You can't do it without God's help. You let go of that idolatry. You let go of that pride. You let go of your own works. You let go of what you control you thought you had. Say, I don't have any control over this. God's got control over. So cling to God's faithfulness and let go of your sinfulness. Now we'll finish here. In verse 28 of chapter 9. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. He died. Now if you go back to Genesis chapter 5 when Noah is born. Genesis chapter 5. 28 and 29, it says, When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. So this is when Noah was born. Saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So if you're an Israelite and you're here in this generation, this genealogy, Hey, Noah, he's going to be the one that's going to bring some rest. You're striving and you're toiling But literally four chapters later, as the Israelites are hearing this, he's the one that's going to bring relief. And he's a mess in the tent. And then not long after that, he dies. It is such a sobering reminder that we need something better for salvation. That we need something better for true rest. And church, you know the answer to this. It's the easy Sunday school answer. Who provides true rest? Jesus. Absolutely. Noah, he's going to be the one to provide the relief. He's going to, the ark's going to be the salvation, a temporary salvation because the intention of man's heart is still wicked. Where do we find true rest and salvation forever? There is salvation in no other name than the name of Jesus. Amen. So, church, as we finish up here and we get ready and we prepare for communion. What have you been striving after? What have you been looking to for salvation? What sinfulness do you need to let go of? When you begin to let go of sinfulness, don't just let it go and think, oh, that's how I'm going to be right with God. You let go of your sinfulness and you cling to the faithful righteousness of Jesus. That's the beauty of the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these true history lessons, God. God, I pray that we would never put our hope in a person. May Veritas Urbana never hope in an individual, but may they always hope in the righteousness of Jesus, the faithfulness of you, God. And Father, now as we take communion and we're reminded jesus body and blood i pray that we would be reminded of how faithful you have been to us that when we take that wafer and we drink that juice that we're reminded that our hearts are wicked but there's salvation and true rest that comes through jesus thank you In jesus name